Dixon. Okay. Well, guys, uh, if you have a Bible handy, you can jump over to Matthew 16, which is where we'll be today. We're not in Proverbs today. We'll be back in Proverbs uh, soon enough. Um, it is grand final weekend. Uh, if you didn't know that, uh, the, uh, the Lions had a, had a bit of a loss yesterday, but it's the Broncos this afternoon. Hopefully they can get up. Um, yeah, there's a few Broncos shirts I can see floating around. Um, what was that? Wrong team. Okay, so uh, maybe a bit controversial. Um, I was watching the Lions yesterday. I like sport. Um, I was watching the Lions. I don't normally watch the AFL. And I was watching it with Lucy. And Lucy says to me, Dad, Piastri's not even in this sport. Um, Piastri is the Australian rookie F1 driver. He's having a blind of a season for McLaren, and that's what I'm into. Um, and Lucy was disappointed that uh, Piastri wasn't playing AFL. Um, my main sport, I love, I love, I love uh, the F1. My main sport's the soccer, though. I've got the soccer socks on today. I always wear those, uh, my lucky socks. Um, and I don't know if you've ever had the experience where um, you're watching, maybe you're, you're a sports person, you're watching a replay of the game because you weren't able to watch it in real time and you're watching the replay, but this happens to me all the time. Social media, you find out the score and it totally ruins the whole experience because you're trying to, like you're watching this game, but you know exactly what's about to happen. Now that's frustrating because it changes the entire. It takes away all the tension. If you know where the if you know where the game's going, there's no tension in the in the in the watching of it, and it's just a bit. For it's like detail. It's just that it doesn't really matter. The entire experience is, is ruined. Knowing knowing the score totally yeah it changes the experience. Today I want to talk to you about talk together. Now that we have this opportunity with everyone you know our two services in the room, I want to talk about the future of the church. The good news is. We know where this is going. We know the score. And knowing, knowing where the, the future of the church is headed does entirely change how we live out the details, especially the trials, when it gets hard. And so today, as we kind of look out into the future, I pray that the Lord would, would fill us with wisdom, uh, with realism, and with faith. And so let's just pray now before we jump in. Uh, Lord, I pray, I pray exactly what I just said, Lord. I pray that you would give us eyes to see the world as you have made it, Lord, as we talked about in Proverbs 8, Lord, that we would um, have faith-filled eyes to see, to look out into what is coming our way um, with realism and with wisdom, knowing that you sit on the throne no matter how hard it gets. And so, Lord, we thank you for that truth. We pray that in your word you would help us to, to see what you have to say to us, Lord, through Matthew 16. Would you, would you bless us through your word, we ask. Amen. All right, audience participation time. We'll see how this goes. Well, I did a lot of this on camp, so I'm just bringing that back to, to Nogra. Uh, audience participation time. Put your hand up if you think, for you, your experience is um, that it feels harder now to be a Christian in Brisbane, Australia, than it did like a couple of years ago. You feel like it's, it's harder couple of hands, way less than I was expecting. Maybe everyone's scared because they think it's hard to be a Christian in this church even. A um, couple of hands, right? Okay, so um, I'm going I'm to ask a slightly more personal one this time um, that I know that some of you will definitely relate to. Hands up, if because of your Christian faith, you've even had like lost friendships because you're like, I'm following Jesus and that means that it's going gonna, it's gonna to be this inflational damage. Yeah. 
Look around, guys. Following Jesus has a cost. I don't know if you know that. It's hard to do it. And so I think it's important for us all together to admit this this thing's difficult. Like, let's admit where we are at in our culture. Things are getting harder. The temperature is rising. I don't just mean the climate change, right? I mean, the, it's, the animosity towards Jesus is real. You can feel it. And so it's important for us to just acknowledge where we are at. I think, um, I think it's safe to say that our secular culture has well and truly given up on God. Well and truly given up on God. And that's a tragedy, isn't it? Because they've rejected a Jesus that they've never met. They're rejecting the caricature of, of Jesus, not the, per, not the real person. And that's what makes it so incredibly traumatic to watch. You know, I, um, at the same time, I don't know if you've, you've noticed this, there's a, uh, there's a sense in which our secular culture is also, also haunted by rejecting Jesus. His, his ghost lives in the building still. They can't get away from him. This is what Dane Ortland had to say. He said that the world is starving for a yearning love, a love that remembers instead of forsakes, a love that isn't tied to our loveliness, a love that gets down underneath our messiness, a love that is bigger than the enveloping darkness we might be walking through even today, a love of which the very best human romance is just the faintest of whispers. Our culture's desperate for that kind of thing, and it has no way of getting it. Because it's ditched the transcendent, it has no way of accessing this kind of love that goes beyond all things. It is desperate. It's starving for a love that goes beyond death. They're starving for a life of meaning. They're starving for something solid on which to build their lives, and yet in ditching God, they've lost it. And so there's a sense in which they hate God, but they want to keep everything that he brings to their lives. They're haunted by God. And so, listen, I just like as a church, let's just remember, our, our culture might, might have given up on God, but he has not given up on them. He is still at work in this world. Very much so. And so as a church, I think we have a profound opportunity to continue to be the people of God in this, in this moment, to continue to take the love of God, the good news of Jesus, to this world that is desperate for it, absolutely desperate for it. And I think the future of this church, it depends really on us taking our role seriously, as he has called us to. And so Matthew 16, uh, the reason we're going there today is I think Matthew 16 helps us kind of lift our eyes off ourselves and onto the promises of God and reorientate ourselves around his purposes for us and not our self-centered agendas, our, our kind of small, small human thinking. That's what Matthew 16 does for us. He gives us it gives us Jesus' own vision for our lives. Um, you know, Jesus taught us very clearly to seek first the kingdom. And so that's our big theme today. Seek first the kingdom. Of God, And so I've got three points today I want to talk through through our text today in Matthew 16. Firstly, the kingdom of God is inevitable. The kingdom of God is inevitable. The kingdom of God, secondly, is counterintuitive. And finally, the kingdom of God is costly. 
kingdom of God is inevitable, it's counterintuitive, and it is costly. And I think these things will help us kind of live at our role as Christians in, in this difficult circumstance we found ourselves in uh, with, with courage and with faith. Um, to say these things negatively, I think it is helpful, actually. Uh, the kingdom of God, it's not stalling. It's not natural, and it's not comfortable. It's not stalling, it's not natural, and it's not comfortable. So let's look at these ones one at a time from verse 13 first. The kingdom of God is inevitable. Verse 13. It says, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do you say, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So Jesus, he's been on the scene now for a long enough time that he's got a reputation. People know who he is, right? Um, and rumors have been flying around everywhere as to who this guy is and like what his agenda is. And so there's, people are saying everything, right? Um, and so Jesus sits down and goes, okay, with his disciples, he gets his 12 together. What are people saying about me? What's, what's the chat on Twitter, or X as it is now called? What's, what are people saying on, online? Who, who, what are people saying about me? And they said, look, some people say, John the Baptist. Some people are saying that Jesus is John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. He's a reincarnation of, a reincarnation. It's Elijah, the prophet from old. Or others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So just like today, back in Jesus' own day, there was a million and one opinions about who this guy was. Everyone's got their own opinion about who Jesus is. And I find it really interesting here that Jesus doesn't seem to care too much about what, what, the, what the chatter is. He cares about what his disciples think. Verse 15. He says, okay, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Jesus is much more concerned with what we have to say about his identity than what the general chatter is out in the world. Who do you say that I am? I think this is one of those questions that every single person has to answer for themselves. Maybe you're here and you, you, you've yet to really come to grips with who Jesus is. Jesus is asking you this question. Who do you, who do you say that I am? Verse 16. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus Jesus can't contain himself. He loves this answer. His eyes light up. And he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, yes, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, you are, and I tell you, you are Peter. This is the moment he calls him Peter. I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I love this. Jesus, just, he gets really excited. Peter, you did it. This is it. And this has come to you from the Lord. This isn't something that you have figured out for yourself. My Father himself has revealed this to you. Jesus, he says, he says, I'm going to build my church, my kingdom. And there is nothing that's going to stop it. There's nothing in heaven and in hell that is going to stop my kingdom. And so today, in our kind of cultural moment where we feel the pressure getting turned up a little bit and it feels a little bit more difficult, let's acknowledge that 
following Jesus can seem like a fool's errand. We feel like we're in the minority now. Is this actually going to work out well for us? Jesus is not worried about anything. He's not worried about the, about the, uh, about the success of his kingdom. He's not worried about how things are panning out in Australia. He's pretty confident. He wasn't, he wasn't anxious about the success of his church when the Romans were crucifying Christians in the, in the Colosseum, and he's not worried now we're getting panned on the project or whatever. This is what Jesus had to say in Mark verse 30, uh, 4, verse 30. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out branches so that the birds of the air can make it nests in its shade. Like a little tiny seed that grows into a tree, right? So the kingdom of God can look small and look weak and look vulnerable to the birds. Eventually, that thing is going to become a home for the birds. It's going to grow. Its power will always prevail. And so Jesus is not anxious about the success of his kingdom. He was not anxious back then when he was walking around the the Roman Empire claiming that he was going to be king of the world. (laughs) Just imagine it, right? Like this is... Can you imagine how people would respond to his claim back then? Who do you think you are? You're a nobody carpenter. You've got a couple of followers, sure. But you're, you're a nobody from a nowhere town. You're, you know, you're not anywhere near the corridors of power. Jesus, to quote, to quote Hamilton, you're not in the room where it happens. It's, uh, you're, you're not anywhere near this thing, right? What do you think? What are you thinking saying that you're going to rule the world one day? And you can just imagine Jesus kind of with a glint in his eye and a smile just saying, make no mistake, guys, my kingdom will cover the globe. Make no mistake, my kingdom will prevail like a seed growing into a tree, like, like leaven working way through a, dump, a, a, a lump of dough, I should say. Like the tide coming in, my kingdom is inevitable. There is a latent, the latent power of God will prevail. The gates of hell cannot stand against my kingdom. I've always loved this image of Jesus saying, saying this, right? Because gates, gates are a defensive structure, right? It's, he's talking about it like a fortress. The, gate, the, the, the fortress of hell won't prevail. So in this analogy, Jesus is the one attacking the fortress, right? He's the one with the sword coming out of his mouth on a horse, leading the armies of, of the saints against Hell itself, which means in this metaphor, we're on offense. We're playing offense, and it's the gates that don't stand a chance. The kingdom of God is moving forwards. It is an unfair fight to the other team, guys. The Lord will prevail. And so, if you find yourself anxious all the time as a Christian... Maybe you need to repent of your small thoughts of the Lord. 
and rest in what he has said. He is not anxious. He has not given up. He is still, it's, it's still plan A, right? Plan A is still, still on. He's called the play, which is we're going to live in this world. It's going to be difficult, but we're going to live for Jesus. We're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're going to preach the gospel. We're going to sow seeds that are going to grow into trees. We're going to continue to do the little things. We're going to continue to gather as a local church. We're going to continue to pray together for the kingdom of God to come. We're going to continue to do these things that he's called us to do. And we're going to trust him that he's going to have his way. And yeah, it might be hard. But there's no need for anxiety. There's no need for anxiety. Faith makes us optimists. Secondly, the kingdom of God is counterintuitive. So firstly, the kingdom of God is, is inevitable. The gates of hell, hell aren't going to prevail against it. Secondly, the kingdom of God is counterintuitive. It's not natural. It doesn't work according to human wisdom. You know, we've been talking a lot about wisdom as a church recently in the book of Proverbs, and so this one will be interesting for us to think about. The kingdom of God is not, doesn't play by natural human wisdom. Pick up the story in Matthew 16 again. So Jesus says, I should say Peter says, Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus basically high-fives him and goes, yes, that's exactly right. This has come from the Lord. And then he says this. From that time, so from that moment, so they've had this conversation, from this moment, Jesus began to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. Many things from the elders and children. Uh, chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So from this moment where, where Peter calls it, Jesus begins to get really explicit about the fact he's going to suffer and die and rise again. He begins subverting everything the disciples had thought about what Jesus' agenda was actually going to be. They all thought that Jesus, as the Messiah, was going to bring military victory over Rome. He's going to become the king of Israel, like politically, and establish the, the, the state of Israel again. And Jesus was going to sit on the physical throne. They're going to throw off the overlords of, of the Romans. And they're excited to do that. They've been under foreign rule for centuries and centuries and centuries. And Jesus says, actually, they're going to kill me. It's necessary that they kill me. I must suffer. I must die. And there's just, apparently, just non-comprehension on every level from the disciples. They don't get it. Jesus, what are you talking about? This makes no sense. You can't die. That ruins the plan of you on the throne, right? And so uh, the disciples, in particular Peter, they, they drag Jesus aside and try and correct him, because clearly Jesus has got off the track a little bit. Um, I like to imagine that all the disciples kind of had a little team meeting without Jesus and was like, okay, Peter, you ready for this? I reckon you got this. <laughs> Go tell Jesus that he's confused. Verse 22. And Peter took him aside, took Jesus aside, and began to rebuke him. Don't do that. Hot tip. Don't do that. Um, they took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. 
you've got to think that Jesus, uh, that Peter's heart's in the right place here, surely. Like he sincerely wants his friend not to get killed. I think. But turns out you can be sincerely, you can be sincere and sincerely wrong at the same time. Yet, despite the fact that Peter's probably speaking from a good place of care for his friend, Jesus responds ferociously, which should, which should make us think about why. Verse 23. But he, that is Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So in the space of three verses here, Peter went from a straight-A student, high-fives-from-Jesus moment, to a get-behind-me-Satan. You are aligning yourself with my enemy. And listen, if Peter can do it, I can do it, and you can do it. If Peter can go from getting it that right to that wrong that fast, you and I can go from getting it that right to that wrong that fast. I think this is an urgent matter for us all, an urgent message for us all to hear then, right? The ways of the kingdom are so radically counter to the way of this world that any time we co-opt worldly thinking and undermine the advance, I mean, to, to help the advance of the kingdom, but undermine God's way, any time we do that, we are thinking satanically, which is a crazy thing to say. We're not just a bit off. We are anti-gospel. Not just a bit off. What was it exactly that earned Peter this rebuke from Jesus? Jesus explains, Peter, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. The things of God, not the things of God, but the things of man. I mean, that's, that is so easy to do, isn't it? We'd often call that wisdom. The things of man, they, they come naturally to us. It's how we think. The wisdom of this world, it's just... It seems right to us. There's a way that seems right to man, and it leads to death. And so it is an active adjustment for us to resist these temptations to, to look to worldly wisdom when the Lord has said, no, we go this way. In this case, it's about power, the use of power. So let me just press pause and just ask us the question, what do you think in Brisbane today, if we want to see revival in our city today, what is the barrier, what is the biggest obstacle in the way of the Lord bringing that revival to us? It's an interesting thing to think about. What's, what's the biggest bottleneck we've got to pray down? Um, there's, there's probably a million things we could say, and there'll be some good chats at small group, I reckon. Um, let me share what, what one famous pastor theologian from a while back, Francis Schaeffer, had to say of his day. So this is, this is a little bit old, culturally dated, but he's right, I think. This is what he said. He said, the, 
central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism, nor the old Roman Catholicism, nor the new Roman Catholicism, nor the threat of communism, nor even the threat of rationalism or the monolithic consensus which surrounds us. Pause. We can, oh, time has passed. We can add a few more isms in here, I reckon. Um, we can add in um, postmodernism, uh, the threat of materialism, naturalism, uh, the threat of left-wing radicalism, right-wing radicalism, uh, the great Australian religion, apathyism, apathetic to everything, all these isms. He goes on. All these are dangerous, obviously, right? But not the primary threat. The real problem is this. And I think that's what Jesus was saying to Peter. The real problem is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually and corporately, tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than the spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. I think the entire Old Testament would make that case pretty strongly. It's always the sin in the people that undermines everything. That's the greatest problem always. And I think so, both individually and corporately, when we tend to do, our, do the Lord's work in our own strength, we are, we're participating in a kind of defective Christianity at that point. A, a kind of sub-Christian Christianity. Almost, I think Jesus would say, an anti-Christian Christianity. And what it is at its core is a functional denial of the presence and power of the Lord in our midst. A functional denial of the presence and power of the Lord in our midst. A statement of faith might say one thing, but do we, are we actually are we functionally believing that those things that we're saying we believe? Friends, the Lord is here as I'm speaking right now. You better believe it. Let's never forget that. We might call it just doing church, right? Going through the routines of church, showing up to church, putting on the show, making the coffee, and all going home. I think nowhere do I see this danger in my life and in our church in more stark terms than on the low priority we put on prayer. It just says so much about what we actually believe. And so, guys, we, we've got to be careful that we don't look to our own wisdom. We don't look to our own cleverness. We don't look to the ways of the world. What we need to do together is, again, position ourselves so that we might receive from the Lord above grace. We might enjoy his presence together. I glorify him together. And we seek to shape ourselves around his calling on our lives and not our own agendas. Like, What if we started being a church that didn't just say, hey, Lord, can you bless what we're doing? And instead put that down and said, Lord, show us, lead us, guide us, empower us. Would you set the agenda in this church? And so, I mean, who wouldn't want to be part of a church like that? And so let's together, again, 
We've got two services here together. So let, let me say it once to, to us all. Can we just say a hard no to that kind of prayerlessness that shows that we're just self-reliant all the time and just happy to do things in our own strength and look to one another instead of to the Lord? Let's, let's say a hard no to prayerlessness together. Let's say a hard no to satanic thinking that substitutes the wisdom of the world for the wisdom of God. There are some things in this world that God has put out of bounds that we're not allowed to play with. We have to leave them over there and not substitute God's ways for our ways. And finally, let's say a hard no to, to worldly power. It's so tempting to go that route. So many Christians are going that route presently. Guys, it, it's a way to supplement God's glory with our glory. It's idolatry. We can't do it. So let's, let's be open to what the Lord has. Let's be a church built on the gospel. And let's resist the temptation to, to go our own way. Um, finally, let me do the last one. So he's building his kingdom. The gates of hell won't prevail. Secondly, that kingdom, it operates on spiritual principles that are counter to our wisdom. And so we need to renounce and resist all worldly thinking and self-reliance and look to the spirit. And finally, by the grace of God, it is now our turn to live lives for the kingdom where we will bear fruit. But it will cost us. Verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. For whoever, who would, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You know, the, um, the recent census data that we did not long ago, it showed us everything we already knew, which is that Christianity is shrinking in Australia. Um, so not for the first time, right? There, there is now a social relational cost for in following Jesus. I asked before, and we had some hands go up. I mean, I don't know about your experience, but personally, I always kind of look forward to the moment where I get to tell people I'm a pastor and the different responses I get. Often I get like polite curiosity, like they're genuinely interested. Um, but sometimes I just get like a, how can I get out of this conversation fast so I don't have to, like, so that I don't have to keep talking to this crazy guy. Um, I get that one probably the most. I don't get like any outright. I've never been hit. <laughs> but I mean, I'm young. <laughs> we'll see. Um, and then some people are just genuinely like fascinated. That sounds amazing. And um, so there's a mixed bag, right? But certainly, there's certainly some people that are just, I don't want to know you at all now that I know that you're a pastor. And I want to like, get away from you as if you're contagious. I definitely felt that before. Um, so Jesus is teaching us that there is a genuine cost to following him. We'll take up our cross. The cross, it, he doesn't mean like a, it's a workout, right? Like you're, like you're carrying weights around to do some squats or anything. It's, a, it's an execution. You're carrying your death certificate, your death on your back. 
You're carrying it around with you. You're being recognized by that thing on your back. Are you willing to lay your life down to follow him? There's going to be costs. If you haven't figured that out already, there's going to be costs. But what does Jesus say? That's how you find your life. The only way you get your life is by laying down your life. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Uh, Mark Sayers, uh, Aussie Christian pastor, writer, podcaster, um, he's an interesting chap. Um, he said this, and I thought this was really helpful. He said, we've been taught by the great strongholds of our day, whether formed with the structure of secularism or cultural Christianity, or, or both, that pressure is a bad thing. That it is possible to live life and walk through the raindrops without getting wet. So as the cultural pressure increases on the church in our gray zone moment, and we find ourselves in the wilderness, those who turn to God, who choose not to run from the wilderness, but who seek his presence in the wilderness, will be transformed with spiritual authority. I really love what he has to say here. There's a temptation for us to just, really, I think, conform, fit in. Conform, fit in, and put down our cross. And he's saying, no, no, it's not a bad thing that we're feeling those pressures. We're going to get wet. It's going to be hard. But as we do, as we live our lives in that, in that place of trial, and we push into the Lord, it's where we actually find spiritual blessing. It's not a bad thing that it's hard to be a Christian in this world, guys. Following Jesus means we are going to get wet. It's going to get difficult. And so, let me just wrap up. I think we can take courage. I don't think the Lord's stressed. I think we can look to him. We can trust him. Continue to be faithful. Live out our calling in the wilderness. We've got to resist that temptation, though, of building our empire by our own means. Look to him. And finally, yeah, we really do need to lay down our life to follow him. It's going to be a cost. But in laying down our life, we are only following the one who laid down his life for us. He'll be there every step of the way, and it's in him that we find our life. So let's pray. Lord, we want to follow you. We want to live a life that is worthy of your kingdom. Live a life worthy of your cross. And for us, that means actually resisting a whole host of temptations in our lives. Temptation to obvious sin, obviously, Lord. But temptation to just self-centeredness, self-grandeur, living for our own glory. Lord, reaching for tools that you've said we can't use because they are counter to your gospel. Help us just trust you, Lord. Help us to have faith and be filled with a faith-filled optimism that knows that while you are on the throne, there is nothing ultimately that we need to be stressed about. 
Not that it's going to be easy. You've told us very clearly there's going to be costs. Lord, those costs. Lord, they can't compare to the weight of glory that is that is coming. Lord, it is, it is in our weakness that you are strong, not in our strength. And so we pray like Peter, that we would confess that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and we would live with the confidence that brings our lives. That we would trust that you hold the future, that you'll hold us to the very end. So keep us running the race well. And Lord, I pray for those in this room, Lord, who feel, who do feel that, that lingering sense of anxiety, perpetual anxiety, Lord, around, around the future. Lord, would you give them, give them faith to trust you, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your cross, Lord, that Jules led us through earlier. Lord, the wonder of your cross that saves us from our sin. Lord, it is a privilege to be your child. It is a privilege to be, to be in relationship with you, Lord. And it is a privilege to give our lives for your kingdom, for your sake. So help us, Lord. Live lives, Lord, of courage and of love, of boldness. And pray that this church will continue to thrive for the next 150 years and into the future. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.